Good morning, everyone. On behalf of uh, my family and uh, my wife, Hosanna, and our two boys, I just want to say and wish you an incredibly blessed and happy Christmas time as we enter into this Advent season. It's, uh, it's going to be a beautiful, holy, holy season, I believe, and I, I pray for you and your family that you just have a wonderful, wonderful season together. Um, Hosanna mentioned she starts celebrating Christmas early. And, uh, and a lot of people do. Our neighbors across the street from us were the first in our neighborhood to do anything Christmas. It was well before Thanksgiving that they had a, San- a blow-up Santa Claus and, and Frosty. They put out in their yard. And as a matter of fact, he took this video facing our house, directly facing our house, along with that song by the Rockwells that says, uh, um, I always feel like somebody's watching me. And it's like looking right at our window, and he thought that was really funny. Well, a couple days later, they blew over in a, in a bit of a windstorm. So I took a picture of them, like, tossed around on the ground, and I said, I just want you to know, I didn't send this as any sort of message to you. This, I didn't do that as, like, I'm sending a threat or anything. And he said, well, we'll stay frosty. We don't know. We don't know if we can trust you. Well, um, the other day, uh, Wednesday, we got home and realized that they weren't home yet in the evening, and it, it was pretty dark out, and I was like, I'm going to go steal their snowman and their, and, their, and their Santa Claus. And there's, there's a competition in our neighborhood for who has the best decorations and things. So there's kind of this undercurrent of you beat us last year kind of thing. So um, we had to be really sneaky about it because we have a, a county sheriff that lives right next door to them. So, so we're in the, in the dark. We're like sprinting across lawns like in the darkness and, and grabbing these, these inflatable things and dashing across the street and plugging them into our own extension cords. And we set them up directly across the street waving to their house. And we thought that was so fun. And uh, the problem was that they got home. He thought it was hilarious, but he has a little kindergarten daughter who doesn't understand pranks. And she was just like, they stole Frosty and they stole Santa. And she was really upset about it. And then they ruined Christmas. And, and, uh, and so they ended up putting caution tape around their Santa Claus and Frosty with signs that say, her, the daughter wrote signs that say, danger, minefield. And so... <clears throat> Um, which is really funny to me because during the day they don't leave them on, so they kind of flop over and they look like the minefield got them. Santa's like kapooey, I don't know. But uh, um, let me just tell you that uh, it's not my goal to steal your Christmas um, this this Advent season. A a common message that you often hear spoken... um, is to attack the auxiliary things of Christmas, you know, the, the movies, the music, the, the gifts, um, because um, commercialism, and we need to be careful that, that we remember Jesus is the reason for the season, and let me just say that is true and that is right, but um, I, I believe that when they're in their proper place and when, we, when they remain as they are as auxiliary, we can really enjoy those things. They create beautiful memories and things for our families. Um, so I, I just want you to know that this message is not going to make us walk out of here feeling guilty that we're going to like go watch Elf, you know, this year or something like that. Um, I, I'm, I'm excited about this, this season because really what we're going to be unpacking is something that, that isn't going to take away from that, that fun stuff, but really I think it's going to multiply. It's, when we talk about the gift of Emmanuel God with us, when we talk about these, these, the incredible miracle of the angels, what they sang about, it's so much bigger and so much greater and so much more complete than all of the other supplementary stuff we have along with it. So it's really what we're, it's no competition. When we talk about the miracle of Jesus, it's fine to have those other things, but to remember, wow, what an amazing thing 
It's so much greater. It's so much grander. And so when we talk about the miracle of Jesus' birth, it multiplies many times over the joy of the season. So this morning, let's just jump right into our text. You saw there our our title of our series is He Shall Be Called. And we're going through the different names of Jesus that are mentioned in the book of Isaiah chapter 9. So if you can with me, let's open our Bibles uh, to Isaiah chapter 9. If you'd like to join us on the Bible app, you can. Um, just open the Bible app and go to events and you'll see it right there. All the verses we're using. You'll see some of the announcements that we have, things of that nature. And you can add your own notes. So join, join me now. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6. It says this. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. So this is one of the best known, oft quoted uh, uh, pro- pro- prophecies of the Messiah that you will hear in the Bible. We often go right to the book of Isaiah talking about the, the prophecies that were, that were given uh, of this Jesus that was to be born. And so over the next four weeks and as we walk through this Advent season, we're going to be surveying these titles that Isaiah gave the promised son that we were to be given. He calls him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But as I often remind us when we, when we study Scripture, when we look at Scripture, it's important that we remember that we are the third audience, right? Have, do you remember me mentioning this? We're, we're often at least the third audience down the road. Um, because while Scripture was written for us, right? All Scripture is God-breathed and inspired of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't necessarily written directly to us, right? Scripture is for us, but it wasn't written directly to us. So right now, let's place ourselves in this story. What's going on? What's going on with Isaiah? What's, what's happening here as, as Isaiah's writing this? And what's he addressing? So let's, we're going to get in the time machine. We're back in time. To way, way, way before Isaiah even. The Israelites come out of slavery in Egypt. And they march across the desert for uh, 40 years. They are in the desert and they reach the promised land finally, and, and there they become a nation, a sovereign nation in their own land, and they, they begin to take the land. But at this time, they are being ruled as a theocracy, meaning that it's ruled by God. And God speaks then through the prophets, and he, speaks through ju- he works through judges, and there's people that lead the country. But the people are looking at the countries around them, and they go, you know what, this is great and all, but the other countries are cooler. All, all our friends have kings. We want to have a king. And so they complain to God that they really want a king. And God's like, you really don't want this, I promise. But they say, we really do. And so God lets them get a king. And so they get a king named Saul. And so they transition from a theocracy, rule of God, to a monarchy, right? And it's rule by a king. And so Saul becomes their first king. And things start off real great with Saul. Kind of go bad at the end there. And then David takes the throne. And David just is like incredible. He's an incredible king. The, the, the borders of Israel grow. The security is in place. It's thriving. It's a wonderful nation. And then his son Solomon takes it to the next level. I mean, talk about riches and influence. The country is in its golden, literally golden age. There's just, it's just an incredible season for, for, for Israel. But after Solomon's death, things implode. There become, a civil war comes along. 
Civil war happens and the nation was fractured into two regions. There was a northern kingdom that was called Israel and there was a southern kingdom that was called Judah. And these two kingdoms, while the people may have been related, were as distinct and separate as they can get. This was, this was, this is North Korea, South Korea type separation I'm talking about. They, they, they had no interaction with one another in, in terms of relations or anything like that for much of their existence. And so these two nations went through their own rotations of kings. And really it was kind of a mixed bag on what kind of king you were going to get. Sometimes it was a good king. Most of the time it wasn't such a good king. And, uh, and they went through this rotation of kings that would come through and rule these two different nations. And, and it felt like there would be a really bad king, and then a really, really bad king, and then a good king. But not quite as good as it could have been, and it keeps going down and getting worse. And, and, and these, these nations just continue along, into moving into idolatry led by these kings, worshipping false gods, and being pulled away from truth, and, and they're breaking God's covenant. And this all progressed and came along, until along came a king named Ahaz. This king Ahaz came to power in the southern kingdom here, in in Judah. And Ahaz comes to power when he was just 20 years old. And Isaiah chapter 7 tells the story a little more about what was happening here. But he comes to power when he's 20 years old and he steps into political turmoil. It was a mess that he steps into. It was, it was terrible. There was war on every side. Um, The northern neighbors, Israel, remember they're related. It was a It was a civil war that split them, they're related, but their northern neighbors really didn't like them to the point they wanted to invade. And so Israel was ready to invade Judah, but they weren't going to do it alone. They went to to another country and they went and got uh, Syria and they said, let's make an alliance with Syria and us and Syria are going to invade Jerusalem and we're going to take it over. And so... This, this massive army is beginning to grow in Israel and, and with Syria, and they're getting ready to come down and attack Judah. And, and in chapter 7, it talks about when Ahaz hears the news, the king of Judah hears the news that he's about to be invaded, he is terrified. It says that when he heard the news, he shook like a tree in a storm. Have you ever heard news that's so bad you literally tremor? You literally shake. This is kind of, this is the news he hears and he's shaking because this news just shakes him to the core. It's a fear so real that it, it physically overtakes him. And Isaiah, the prophet that we just read from, comes to Ahaz and he says, I've got good news for you. God has spoken. And he says, you don't need to worry about this at all. God says, I've got it under control. He says, they aren't even going to get a, a, an invasion done. They aren't even going to get into the country. It's, it's said and done for. God's got it figured out. And God even said this to me, Ahaz. He says this, test me in it. It doesn't matter how big the test. You can, it can be as high as the heavens, as deep as the sea. Test me in this and I will show you that I will deliver you from them. And so Isaiah tells him this good promise from God that God is going to come through. And do you know what Ahaz says? I don't believe you. Like... He, he, he says, I'm not even going to test God. I'm not even going to see if that's true. I'm not going to test God. I've got my own plans. And so Ahaz has his own plans because he's heard that there's an even bigger and badder country out there that he can ally with, uh, ally with to take, o- to, to defeat Israel and to def- defeat, uh, this, this impending threat. So he goes and he makes an alliance with a guy named T- Tiglath-Pileser, the king and nation of Assyria. And so he goes to, to the Assyrians and he says, listen, guys, I'm about to be attacked. Let's make an alliance. And so he makes this alliance with Syria, but it's with devastating results, which we're going to unpack here soon. Uh, it has devastating results, the decision he makes to go and connect himself with Assyria. So 
We're going to take a moment and take a break here, and I'm going to change gears. Let me just ask you this. Um, the baby naming process. Who had a hard time when it came to naming your children? Did anybody? Thank you. Some of us. We did. Some, some of you were like, we knew from the minute. We, we just knew immediately. There was a lot of debate that went on. That's probably why we only had two kids, was we couldn't take more naming issues. Um, but we, what we did when we named our kids is we gave each other veto power. I don't know if anybody else did this. We're like, you have the power to veto somebody else's idea, which apparently for Hosanna's sake really came in handy because I had some great ideas. Um, with Gavin, uh, a month before he was due, I went to a youth convention. I was a youth pastor at the time, and there was a band there, and there, one of their lead guitarists was like from Sweden or something like that, and his name was Dragon. And I was like, that is the coolest name I have ever heard. I was inspired. I was like, there will not be another child that's named Dragon in his entire school. I guarantee it. And I came home and I was so excited. I was like, Hosanna, he shall be called Dragon. And she said, Veto. (laughs) So I thought it was like, what's cooler than a dragon? I don't know. So she used veto on that. Judah also, she used some veto powers on that. So, um, so Judah was, was due to be born and on the 4th of July, Hosanna went into labor. And so we went to the hospital and we're in the hospital and we, the, the birthing floor at, at uh, Sacred Heart over here is like way up there. And so you can see over the city and it was night and we saw fireworks going on all over town. And I was like, we will name him Boomer. <laughs> and she's going, Veto! (laughs) And she vetoed that one. I thought that was a brilliant one. I was like, come on, like, the former Cincinnati Bengals Pro Bowl quarterbacks, his name was Boomer Esiason. Like, I mean, the 80s and 90s, he was a great quarterback. And uh, and I thought that was a really good one. She's like, no, that's not going to happen. And she said, that's probably not even his real name. And so I looked it up, and his real name was actually Norman Julius, which... uh, I can see why he went by Boomer. It's a lot catchier. But so anyway, my, my naming efforts sometimes got, got pushed to the floor. But in, in this situation, going back to Ahaz, Ahaz makes this alliance. He, he says, I reject God's uh, promise of, of taking care of us. I reject even seeking a sign. I will not seek a sign from God. I'm going to do things on my terms. And so do you know what uh, Isaiah says to him in chapter 7? He says, you didn't ask for a sign. You're still going to get a sign. He says, you're still going to get a sign. And so in, ch- in verse number uh, 14, he says this to Ahaz. He says, all right, then the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child and she will birth, get birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So this is what leads us to this point. Sometimes I read this and I just think, you know, uh, Isaiah's prophesying in a vacuum. He's like sitting there and he's writing down things as God says it to him. But there's a storyline that's going on behind the scenes here. This, this, this uh, king has been making decisions unilaterally from God. He says, God wants me to do this. I'm not even going to test God. I'm going to do this. And so Isaiah is prophesying. He's saying, look at the evil that's going on in this world. Look at the decisions that are being made that aren't godly that says, God says, do this. You're doing this. I'll send you a sign. There's going to be a ruler that comes that rules with justice. There's going to be a ruler who comes who brings God himself into our humanity, into our existence, who brings justice, who brings holiness, who rules with righteousness. And Isaiah is prophesying into this situation. Isn't this amazing? 
So, so here's what's going on in this, in this whole story. He says, God himself is going to become flesh and dwell among us. The salvation that you seek isn't going to come from a strategic alliance, but it's going to be realized way down the road, far down the road of God's own hand. 740 years from when Isaiah prophesied it, it would happen. That's a long time. Seven, you think about the age of our country. Who knows how old our country is? Like three, 200 and some odd. You think about how many ages of our own country that is to wait for the messiah and so 740 years before the birth of christ he 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 prophesies this miraculous birth and so instead of trusting god ahaz becomes one of the most evil kings in the history of judah this was really i believe a turning point in ahaz's story so in the year 732 he does what he says he's going to do he goes to damascus and he swears homage to tiglath pileser the ruler of of uh, assyria and he also pledges allegiance to his gods and while he's there in damascus he he uh uh he, he sees this altar that's set up to the gods of, of the Assyrians and he takes a liking to it. He's like, that's pretty cool. I'm going to kind of bring that back home. So when he gets back to Jerusalem, he constructs his own version of this altar that, to these false gods and puts it right as part of the temple worship in Jerusalem. And in this alliance he makes with the Assyrians, while it does actually ultimately hold off invasion for a while and captivity for a while, he makes Judah an, a, a puppet state of Assyria. He has no real power. He's just a, a kind of a, a figurehead. And so um, he takes this, this, this altar and this terrible sin into Judah and he rejects the counsel of the prophets. He rejects the worship of the true God and he turns to idolatry. And as a matter of fact, in 2 Kings 16, where it tells more of his story, it says that he even made his own son pass through the fire, which means he sacrificed his own child in fire to a false idol. He burnt his own son on an altar to Moloch. And Isaiah is writing these pro- prophecies. He's seeing all this going on. And you can imagine the conflicted position that Isaiah is in as he's writing this. Because he's seeing his country torn apart. He's seeing, he's seeing this pending judgment against Israel and Judah that's literally on the horizon. He knows that soon Israel is going to be invaded by, by uh, Syria or Assyria and be taken off into captivity and they will never exist again. They will be completely dispersed. There will be a dispersion that happens and they will no longer be a sovereign nation. They're going to be gone. And then later Babylon is going to come and it's going to take off Judah into captivity. But in the middle of all this, he sees an incredible hope. He sees a Messiah. He sees a new king named Emmanuel, God with us, who will set his people free. What an interesting conflict. Have you ever known you have to walk through something really terrible to get to the other side and you know good is on the other side? He knows that there's going to be pain. He knows there's going to be difficulty, but he sees the other side. He sees God's promise. So in chapter 9, as we just read, Isaiah gives uh, this king these descriptions that we just walked through. And today we're going to look at the first thing he mentions here where he says he's a wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. Now, we're going to break both of these words down. It depends on the translation you're looking at. A couple of the more modern translations, if you look at the New Living Translation or the ESV, it will have wonderful counselor as one phrase, then comma, and then move on. This is interesting because the the, the biblical Hebrew language doesn't use punctuation. 
And so to know where a phrase ends and starts is kind of difficult to have commas of separation. The, the translators had to kind of guess on where those go. And so comma placement's really important, right? Have you ever heard the sentence, let's eat, comma, grandma? Let's eat, grandma. You take that comma out, it's a really terrible phrase. Let's eat, grandma, right? The comma is really important to know what it means and where it goes. So we want to make sure that we have the commas where they're supposed to go and things like that. But when we look at this, it's really interesting because I believe actually the New Living Translation and the ESV should put a comma between those two because here's the deal. Even though we don't know the punctuation, we know the word. And the word that's used there is a noun, not an adjective. The word wonderful, that first word, is not describing counselor. It's, an, it's, a noun, or it's not an adjective describing counselor. It's a noun. It's, it's its own. And it is wonderful. Or wonder. To wonder. And so it's an actual thing. It's a, an actual defined identity of the Messiah in and of itself. He is wonderful. He is wonderful. The word um, is uh, pele, which means beyond understanding, too wonderful for words. It, and in, it, in its actual definition, especially to the Jewish people, it denoted deity. It's not just that it's like a, a wonderful cheeseburger, right? like, oh, I don't even have words, this cheeseburger is so good. It's denoting deity, like godship. This wonderful, incredible deity, this supernatural wonder. And so when Isaiah is describing this one day savior of the world, Jesus, he, he's saying, I don't, even, I don't even have the words to describe him. And so I'm actually going to use a word that says there aren't any words. I'm going to use a word that says there aren't even words great enough to express just how awesome this, this king is going to be. And he's too wonderful for words. So Isaiah says, first of all, he is wonder. Not just describing him, but it defines him. He is beyond words. Wonderful. He is wonder. And then he calls him counselor. Now, we're going to kind of put these together. I, I feel like we can kind of float them back and forth now that we understand that Isaiah is talking about the, the incredible nature of who God is, that there's nothing he compare, that compares to him. He is wonder. And then this wonder doesn't describe him, but then he calls him, a, can't fully describe him, but then he calls him a counselor. And this would have hit hard, I think, for the people that heard it when he says counselor. Because they were living in a world of corrupt leaders. The counselors in that nation were corrupt. The politicians were ungodly. Those in power were inept and they were evil. And Isaiah says that there's going to be a counselor who's coming. And, and when we hear the word counselor, we usually think of therapist, right? We hear of like, and that, let me tell you, therapy is a wonderful tool. It's a wonderful thing. But um, when Isaiah is talking about that, he's not talking about someone who makes suggestions on life concerns and listens to us and things like that. But a counselor in that day was an official, ca- official cabinet post in a king's leadership uh, organization. It was someone that was listened to and heeded. Um, their, their word carried immense weight. This last week, I got something in the mail that I think we all look forward to, right after credit card offers and things like that, and that was jury summons. I've actually never got to serve on a jury. I don't, I don't know if I'll, I'll get selected or whatnot, but we'll see what happens. But uh, something that happens, I enjoy watching true crime stuff and things on TV of that nature. One of the main important characters that's in a courtroom setting is the legal counsel. Legal counsel. They, your legal counsel is who represent you and they lead you along in your case. Um, what they do and what they say uh, carries enormous weight. The direction they give you. Whenever I watch a true crime thing and the, and the accused is like, I will represent myself. We always groan. We're like, oh, dumbest decision ever, right? Dumbest decision ever. 
Legal counsel has wisdom. There's something that to be, to be yielded to, to be listened to. It's, it'd be tremendously foolish to disregard it. And Jesus here, the God incarnate, becoming flesh, dwelling among us, is our counselor, Isaiah says. He's our counselor. And as such, we must be careful then to listen to the counselor's voice. We must listen to the counselor's voice. In the book of Mark, Jesus does a little uh, mountain climbing with some of his disciples, with Peter, James, and John. And they go up this tall mountain, and Jesus, it says, is transfigured. That means that his appearance is suddenly taken from just being human. to They see him in his glorified state. He is shining. He is brilliant. He is incredible. And they're like, whoa, this is awesome. And they see him in this incredible state. And then this cloud, Mark, Mark 9, 7 says overshadows them and a voice from the cloud said this is my dearly loved son listen to him listen to him so in isaiah 740 years earlier isaiah says that he's going to be our counselor and here god says this is my son you need to listen to him we must listen to the counselor you see there are so many voices in our world there are so many voices there there are voices on talk radio there are voices on, on the TV, on, on news outlets. There are voices on podcasts we can listen to. There are social media influencers that we can listen to. There's no one I trust more than the person that gets in their car with the selfie mode while they're driving and explain a political thing to me and they're really raging. I'm like, oh, I can trust that person. You know, they, they seem to really have it figured out. They're going to Albertsons and have just explained everything to me. There's relatives we just had Thanksgiving with that are voices that are trying to be heard. There's politicians that are trying to, to, to be voices to be heard. What voice are we listening to? See, a temptation will often be to listen to uh, our logic, to, to put our primary emphasis on our logic and our own reasoning. And that's exactly what Ahaz did, right? Ahaz looked at the data. He saw the size of the countries that were about to invade. Syria is coming. Israel is coming. They've got an army. I'm in trouble. And, and here, here Isaiah is just like, don't worry about it. Uh, how about I worry a little bit and I do my part and maybe God can pitch in. I will go and make an alliance with Assyria. They got a big army. And, and I'll figure things out. And so he, he went, he leaned into his logic, which would make sense, but, but he saw the data, he saw the threat from these outside forces, but yet this treaty, um, he felt that would save him and prevent future invasion ultimately was his undoing. Isaiah is asking, are you hearing from God? He chose to listen to the wrong voices. We must listen to the right voice. Hearing the voice of the counselor requires discipline, doesn't it? It requires discipline. It requires slowing down. It's hard to hear from Jesus when we're so busy with our own stuff, with our own things, our own to-do lists, solving things, slowing down. It requires silencing the outside noise. I know I reference football a lot. It's football season. I'm watching a lot of football, okay? But uh, if, you watch, if you watch especially an NFL game today, you'll notice especially the opposing the team that's the traveling team, their quarterback will do this before a play because they've got a headset in their helmet and the plays are getting called into their helmet. But the opposing crowd doesn't want them to be able to communicate. They don't want, they want to disrupt as much as they can. And they're going, Aah! they're yelling with all their might. And the quarterback is putting his hand over his helmet because he wants to drown out all the exterior noise and he wants to hear the voice he needs to hear. Our world is full of cacophonous voices, shouting, wanting to be heard. Listen to me. This is what you need. This is what you need to hear. And right now we need to silence it all and listen to the voice of the counselor. 
dial in to the voice of the counselor. You know, we can hear the voice of the counselor, but it really doesn't do much good hearing it unless we actually do what it tells us to do too, huh? Hearing is one thing, but acting on it's another. We need to obey the voice of the counselor. Who in here would say there's at least one particular area of your life that you like to have control over? That's right. Some of you are lifting someone else's hand. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm referring to. Some of you like control so much that you have actually bought your own Christmas presents and you're informing people what they got you. I'm just saying. I like controlling my own destiny. I like driving my own car. I don't like being the passenger. I like being the one in control. Um, I hated being in group projects in school where my grade was dependent on someone else, where I'm like, Artie over there, uh, he, he, uh, he has gum in his hair. How can I trust my grade to this guy, you know? I, I liked being responsible for my own results, being able to say, I'm going to do this myself. But to be able to say, I'm going to hear the voice and I'm going to obey the voice of the counselor as a story we're going to read several times over the next few weeks, Luke chapter 1. Mary is this young woman that's engaged to be married. She saved herself for her husband. It's a very uh, serious relationship, relationship she's in. You would think that it was a marriage relationship on, on, on how the United States approaches marriage. They're, they're engaged, but it is to such a degree there is legal documentation written up. They have committed to one another. And Mary is in this full committed relationship to Joseph. And an angel comes down and says, Mary, good news, you're going to get pregnant. And it's going to be a miracle. Try explaining that to everyone. And it's going to be the Son of God. And, and here's Mary's response. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. In, in the uh, ESV, uh, it's, it says, uh, let it be. Kind of like the Beatles. Maybe she quoted the Beatles. I don't know. They're a pretty old band. But uh, she says, let it be to me. Let it be to me. I'm sure Mary wasn't thinking at that time she really wanted to be pregnant in her wedding gown. Especially in that culture where adultery was actually something where it could be considered a capital offense. And she put herself in a place of, of complete surrender to God. She said, I am letting you have your way, God. You have spoken. I'm going to say, let it be. I, I love what Craig Rochelle says um, about, about control. He says, we don't always have the power to control, but we always have the power to surrender. We don't always have the power to control our situations, but we do always have the power to surrender. Submission. It's not easy. Matthew 10, 39, Jesus says, If you cling to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Wow. Release it to Jesus. So this morning, what do you need to release to the wonderful counselor? What are, you, what are you holding on to that you need to surrender this morning? What are you clinging to that you need to give up? You see, God isn't a self-help guru like I talked about. He's not a therapist that's there for us just to pick and choose the concepts we like. We're like, you know, Jesus, uh, I really like this idea. I'll grab that one and I'll grab this idea and I'll incorporate those in. But we have to come to him on his terms. He is God. We are not. We must approach him on his terms. And in Mark 10 
There's a story of a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he says, what do I need to have for eternal life? This guy had everything you could want in life. He had money, he had wealth, he had everything you could desire. And Jesus says, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to take everything you have and sell it and come follow me. And the young man went away sad because there was something he wasn't willing to let go of. There was something he wasn't willing to follow all the way through with in obedience. What do we need to be willing to let go of? What have we been holding on to? Lastly is this. We need to be real with the counselor. You see, when we're real with God, he can work miracles in us. Be real and open and transparent. In the book of John, chapter 4, Jesus is with his disciples and he sits by a well and he's thirsty and a woman comes along and she offers him a drink. And they get into a conversation and, and Jesus says, I want you to go get your husband. And she says, oh, Actually, I'm not married. She could have easily lied right there. She, she could have said, you know what? My husband's not away. He's not available or, or whatever. But she said, actually, I'm not married. And Jesus said, what you've said is exactly true. What you've said, you've spoken truth. In fact, you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now isn't even your husband either. And in her honesty and her being real with him, Jesus was able to actually continue the dialogue of her story. He was able to continue to draw things out. And, and in that, it changed her story. Suddenly her story changed from that of, of, of being uh, overcome with sin to being victorious. Um, to, to suddenly being someone that brought hope and life to her entire village or entire community. And it's about in the moment recognizing our need for him, being transparent with our bro- own brokenness. We have been reading from Isaiah and earlier in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying and he has this vision. And he sees the glory of God filling the temple. And, and God's glory is so incredible and so intense. And God says, uh, who am I going to send? And Isaiah is there and he cries out, I am doomed. I am, I am a sinful man. I, I, I can't be here in this moment with a holy God. He recognizes his own wretchedness and he says, I should be dead rather than in this moment. And when he realized the full sinfulness of his own heart and the presence of a holy God, that is when God was able to come with the coal and cleanse him. And recognizing and being real with the counselor and saying, this is who I am. I need something. I need something. And this morning, let me tell you that the wonderful counselor is here to meet us in this place. He's here now. God is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. He's here and he wants to speak. Not, now, let me tell you, God wants to speak not just in the ethereal parts of our relationship with him. The but in the real, tangible ways, in the ways our lives actually work out, in the way we live, how we engage in our relationships with our spouses, how we, how we interact in our work relationships, how we parent our children. We need to hear His voice, we need to obey His voice, and we need to surrender to His voice. This morning, let's get real with the counselor. Can we do that this morning? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Jesus, Emmanuel, Thank you, Father, that you came for us. And thank you that you are the counselor. Too wonderful for words. And this morning, Father, I pray that we would have the courage to be real with the counselor, to be open, to say, here is my brokenness. I lay it before you. Woe is me. I am an unclean. Man, I'm an unclean woman. 
This morning, I want to offer you the opportunity to respond. Maybe you've been looking inside and you said, I have not been real with God. I've been putting up a front. It's not fooling anyone. I am broken. I am in need of a Savior. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning, if that's you, if you say, I need Jesus, the Counselor, to come in and give me a fresh start to wash me clean. If that's you this morning, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, will you raise your hand and raise it high? I want to pray with you. Raise it high. Yeah, thank you. Anybody else? Anyone else? Yes, thank you. Any others? Thank you, Father. This morning, church, I want us to pray this prayer together. But I encourage you, if you have given your heart to Jesus today for the first time, or maybe you're recommitting your life to him, will you let us know on a connection card in a few minutes when Pastor Ty leads us through those? Will you let us know that you've made that decision? We need to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart, that God raised him from the dead. And so this morning, let's pray this out loud. Say, Dear Jesus, thank you for being the counselor, that you are too wonderful for words. I believe that you came to live on this earth. God incarnate. And lived a perfect life for me. You died on the cross for my sins. So that I could have life. But that you also raised again. And that you are king of all. I give you my heart this morning. I surrender to you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. In your name, amen. Amen. This past week, uh, I found myself in the office of the dean of my university. And I know all of you are thinking, "Uh uh-oh, here we go. And it's true. And so I I go and I sit down and I'm talking to the dean. And she's like, hey, Ty, uh, you asked to meet with me. What's up? And I was like, hey, I'd like to discuss my grades with you. And she's like, Ty, um... I know you, you had a baby this term and you've got a lot of things going on. You moved, all this kind of stuff. Like, it's no big deal. And I was like, no, no, can you just look at my grades? And she pulls them up and she's kind of like making, she like double checks three times and she's like, your grades from this last term? And I was like, yeah. She's like, I don't understand. You have, you have two A's. And she's like in shock because uh, when I initially started school years ago, I'm back to finish now, I was like a D's get degrees kind of guy. I was like, hey man, 61% is still passing. Here we go. Like, I got this. And so she was just kind of in shock. She's like, I don't understand. You have you have uh, two A's. And I was like, yeah, can you look at the percentage? She's like, one's 94 and one's 97. And I was like, see, that's that's where I have an issue. And she's like, well, I was like, that 97 should be a 99. And she's like, what? And I was like, well, this assignment says I didn't turn it in, but I did. And so she goes and she's like, are, are you serious right now? And I was like, yeah, I, I, I deserve a 99. I'd like a 99. So she goes, she calls the teacher. It's all worked out. She's like, there you go. You have 99%. And I was like, so what do I got to do to get 100? She's like, get out of my office, like go. And I say that because it's a silly illustration, but we love control. We love saying, hey, I am owed this. This is mine. I'm going to take it. Uh, some of us are even like to the point where like, if you want this from me, you got to take it from my cold, dead fingers. Like you're not going to get this away from me. And God's saying, if you would just let go, if you would just let go, I have so much better for you. So much better. And so as we're, as we're ending the service, I just want to ask you two questions as you pull out your connect card. I'd love for us all to answer this together. 
The first one is this. If 10 is like, I'm perfect, Jesus controls everything, Jesus has taken the wheel, and, and like zero one is, I got all control, and, and, I, and I own everything. If you were to rate yourself somewhere on that one to 10 scale, being honest, like we're no judgment, what would you rate yourself? Where would you be? We're all in the process, right? None of us are perfect. We're all in this progression. But where, if you were real with yourself, if you were honest, like we talked about, honest with the counselor, honest before God, where are you? And secondly, this, uh, I love action steps. I love takeaways because I feel like they help us really process what's going on. If you were to have one thing in your life that you're saying, if I could just relinquish control of this, how much more can I glorify God? If you had one thing that you said, I want to relinquish control of this today, what would that be? Write it down on your connect card. Write it down on your connect card. Can I tell you, uh, I'll just be honest. I have some, uh, mine for me is finances. Like, I am like that weird guy. Like, uh, I had like a half an hour break between doing stuff yesterday. And so my wife were having dinner. I was like, you know what? We're having dinner. This is a perfect time to go over the spreadsheets, talk about our finances. And she's just rolling her eyes. And like, I kid you not, to the dollar we went through it and talked about what we wanted to do with it. I love finances. And I love controlling my finances. And I had to stop and say, wow, I need to give up some control. I need to let God work in the situation. So if you're like me and you have something that's so glaring in your life that you want God to take control, just write that down your connect card so we can pray with you, encourage you, and love on you. We're about to take uh, our, our offering. And before we do, I just want to encourage you guys. You guys have been doing so phenomenal with our giving. You guys have been, uh, we've been meeting our needs. But I believe that there's things that God has put uh on our, on our staff's heart and for this church to do that we aren't able to do yet. And so in this season, I would love to see us in a season that's that's honestly a little bit, uh, there's a little bit of tension with finances because we're like, uh, I, I have to allocate money for other things. What an opportunity to put God first in our finances. So as you're as we're about to take this, I just want you to consider in your heart, God, what, if, what have you asked for me? Not what is what is tie pressure me, not is what is going on, but God, what if what have you asked for me? God, right now I thank you for who you are. I thank you for this time together. I pray as we give that we remember that you are the ultimate gift of Christmas. God, that as we relinquish control, remember that you set the example. In the garden, you said, Not my will, but your will, Father. God, I pray that we'd come into all circumstances with that same attitude. That God, it's not about me, it's about you. God, it's not about what I want. It's about what you want. God, it's not about my control. God, it's about my surrender to you, Lord. God, we thank you for this and so much more. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Usher, you can come forward. Amen. Joyful, joyful, we adore you, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before you, opening to the sun above. Let's stand together and sing this as we go. We sing. Joyful, joyful, we adore you. God of glory, Lord of love, 
hearts unfold like flowers before you, opening to the sun above. Melt, melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the doubt of dark away. We sing, joyful, joyful, we adore you. Hearts unfold like clouds before you. Joyful, joyful, we adore you. Joyful, we adore you. God bless you, New Life Church. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next Sunday.